This is Macro Horizons, Episode 253, Perils of Proactive, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts for the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 18th. And as we make bond bullish revisions to our 2024 outlook, thanks Powell, we're reminded of the perils of being too proactive. And if we published our annual forecast in June, we could at least know we'd be half right. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the most significant shift came in the form of the FOMC's 2024 DOT. We came into the week expecting that the market would take the bulk of its direction from the projection of where monetary policy would end 2024, and that's precisely what happened. We saw the Fed via the SEP signal that they intend to cut rates by 75 basis points next year. There was an argument to be made, which we did, that 50 basis points should have been the departure point. Nonetheless, it was a close call as evidenced by the fact that there were only two dots that effectively made the difference. That being said, the treasury market responded very bullishly to the developments. 10-year yields pushed back well below the 200-day moving average and managed to dip below 4%. This is a constructive development to be sure. And if nothing else, the biggest takeaway was that Next year, we'll see Fed rate cuts. Now, the New York Fed President Williams subsequently came out and attempted to walk back some of that perception, and to some extent, he was successful in this endeavor. But the bulk of that price action was, of course, limited to the two-year sector with 10- and 30-year yields, retaining the bulk of the bond bullish price action that has been priced in over the course of the last several weeks. This creates a very interesting setup for the final two weeks of the year, and we'll note that historically, the last two weeks of December have tended to be characterized by low liquidity, choppy price action, and a general lack of conviction as the year comes to an end. If the market goes into 2024 with 10-year yields at 4%, that would create a meaningfully constructive setup for a year that is expected to be characterized by Powell delaying rate cuts as long as possible. And as Williams confirmed, pricing in a March rate cut at this point is premature given what the Fed is currently considering and the balance of risks. Now, this isn't to suggest that the real economy isn't on a strong footing, because it is. The unemployment rate remains at just 3.7%, comfortably below the Fed's predicted peak of 4.1%, and equity prices remain at or near the year's high. The retail sales print that came in for November surprised on the upside, including the all-important control group, 
which has the highest correlation with GDP. And therefore, it wasn't surprising to see the tracking figures for GDP nudged higher into the mid-twos from the mid-ones. This points to a solid end for 2023 from a growth perspective and allows the Fed plenty of flexibility over the course of the first half of next year to push back against the market's insistence on more significant rate cuts. If the FOMC's goal at its final meeting of 2023 was to push back against the market's aggressive rate cut pricing in early 2024 and financial conditions at their loosest since late summer, then the committee was not successful. The 50 basis point downward revision to the median 2024 dot to 4.6 from 5.1 and implying 75 basis points of rate cuts in the year ahead versus the 50 basis points projected in September was the most overtly dovish update at the meeting, and Powell's press conference did very little to walk back the market's dovish interpretation of the SEP. Specifically, the chair said he believes the policy rate is likely at or near its peak for the tightening cycle, and he even opined on the topic of rate cuts by saying that rate cuts have been a topic of discussion on the committee. And one of the more fascinating aspects of the press conference was the fact that Powell did go out of his way to draw the distinction between cutting rates from restrictive to less restrictive but still restrictive versus actually easing in outright terms. And from the Fed's perspective, we know that that inflection is two and a half in terms of policy rates. So even as the Fed prepares to lower the upper bound of the policy rate from 550 to 475 in the year ahead, they still consider monetary policy to be restrictive And we're anticipating that they allow the balance sheet to run down in the background without any changes next year. One aspect of the Fed that was so interesting wasn't so much the fact that the Fed signaled 75 basis points worth of rate cuts per se, but rather, as you point out, Vale, the chair's reluctance to moderate any of the bond bullish implications from that. As a result, we saw a pretty significant rally in the treasury market. Ten-year yields got back to 390. And even the two-year sector is now more than 85 basis points off of the peak. And this is well before the first rate cut of the cycle. There was an argument going into the Fed that the SEP would, for all intents and purposes, simply be marked to market and reflect the roughly 100 basis points worth of rate cuts that were priced in ahead of the event. The fact that we didn't see that, and it was just 75, is on the margin a bit less dovish than we might have seen. But as we look at the Fed Funds futures market at the moment, we see 150 basis points worth of rate cuts penciled in for next year. We're very sympathetic to the argument that as the Fed begins the process of normalizing policy rates lower, they would like to do so in a measured and predictable manner. In that context, quarterly 25 basis point rate reductions would be consistent with the signaling that policy is going to remain restrictive, albeit less so. The biggest question that we have at the moment is whether or not those rate cuts start in March or if it's a second quarter event. If the Fed wants to retain the flexibility to cut four times if needed, starting the process a bit earlier makes sense in that context. From the market's perspective, the odds of a rate cut in March are roughly 
85%. And as we watch the market incorporate the new information revealed from the FOMC, the operative theme among the client questions we fielded was, first, what inspired the FOMC to show those 75 basis points worth of cuts next year in the dot plot? And more importantly, as you've both touched on, why Powell didn't push back more aggressively against the implied comfort with rates now back below 4% in the 10-year sector and financial conditions now having undone all the tightening that we saw in the lead up to the November Fed. After all, since November, we've seen a decent and then an arguably strong payrolls report and CPI prints that sure, show inflation trending softer but still comfortably above target and with a great distance yet to travel until we get back to the 2% inflation target, what was there to really inspire that much more caution from the Fed in December? And here, one of the answers that comes to mind is, at this point in the cycle, it's less about the outright level of the data, so an unemployment rate at 3.7%, and CPI still well above 2%, and more about the trend. And what we mean by this is that given the fact that we have some signs of labor market softening, wage growth continuing to cool, and disinflation making greater progress back toward target, the lagging nature of these indicators mean that we still have a lot more influence of policy at such restrictive extremes yet to flow through into the realized data. And so as Powell and the rest of the committee do their best to orchestrate the ever-elusive soft landing, the fact that we've seen the trend in employment and inflation move more toward a lower growth or quasi-recessionary environment means that the committee is comfortable with a pivot simply to get ahead of what will likely be further softening in the early part of 2024, and now clearly the groundwork has been laid for rate cuts to be delivered in response to that softening. So the early signs of a pivot, and arguably the early signs of that cyclical bull steepening of the yield curve that we were on guard for to start in 2024, but maybe it started in late 2023. Another interpretation of what Powell is at least attempting to do is to refocus the market on the measures of inflation that it finds most valuable, specifically core PCE. Yes, core CPI on a year-over-year -year basis is still trending at 4%, but when we look at the three-month annualized rate of core PCE that was presented with the third quarter's GDP numbers, we see that pace is at just 2.3% on a revised basis. Powell's press conference suggests that the Fed might be viewing that progress as well in line with their objectives of re-anchoring PCE to 2%. There are also a couple other factors to keep in mind. Ben, as you point out, the soft landing has at least historically proven to be very elusive. It does appear that the Fed at least has a non-zero probability of delivering such an outcome this cycle, and given the strength of November's payrolls numbers as well as the CPI update, the Fed, if nothing else, has a longer runway to deliver such a soft landing. There's also potentially a political component as well. We know that 2024 is an election year, and historically, the Fed has made painstaking efforts to retain its independence. And so there is an interpretation that if the Fed knows that they're going to be cutting rates in 2024, they don't want it to appear to be directly linked to the current administration. So by laying the groundwork for rate cuts in 2024, 
Powell could arguably have been trying to disconnect the two, which, if that's the case, I'll suggest that he was reasonably successful in. And so we have the trend in the data, some nuances in how the Fed is actually observing the data, and perhaps some political pressure in explaining why the Fed came off so dovishly this past week. To turn the conversation a bit to the market's reaction and the scale of the rally we saw in treasuries, I would also say it's worth mentioning the collective sentiment among investors before the meeting and then after the meeting, given that after the dramatic moves we've seen over the past few months, remember that it wasn't so long ago that 10-year yields were above 5%, and now with the benchmark now back comfortably below 4%, there's certainly an aspect of a real money investment community that was waiting for the reason to buy. Obviously, in the early part of this year, which was broadly seen to be the year of a recession, the year the labor market finally softened, and the year that yields were going to move lower, there was a lot of buying that was executed prematurely, and that in turn led to a distorted positional landscape that in turn distorted the price response in the market, and I would argue helped contribute to the bearishness we saw in the wake of the August refunding announcement that ultimately got 10-year yields to 5%. Fast forward to November and what we saw at the November refunding announcement, combined with some of the economic data and the more dovish pivot from the Fed, and now there's unquestionably a fear of missing out on the rally. Generally speaking, investors were on the sidelines waiting for the reason to buy bonds, given slowdown worries, given dovish central banking turns globally, and so now that it seems that reason is upon us, there's undoubtedly a degree of rally-chasing behavior at play in accounting for the move so quickly running from 425 10-year yields back to 390. And that's certainly a domestic story, but likely an international one as well, after overseas buyers have spent so much of 2023 on the sidelines, we now have more and more signs that suggest treasury buyers abroad are becoming more engaged. Japan comes to mind in this context, but also I would say the international community now certainly has a reason to get long treasuries, and that's the fact that Powell has opened the door to the conversation about rate cuts. And I think that this is precisely what the market was waiting for throughout the bulk of 2022 and 2023, was not necessarily a pivot with rate cuts on the horizon, but at least to get done with rate hikes. It's this moment of policy stability both from the Fed, but also from the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, which investors had been anticipating as an ideal entry point to start adding duration exposure. Now, the fact that the move occurred so dramatically and the repricing was so significant does suggest, as you alluded to, Ben, that there was a degree of FOMO at play as the market started to rally and investors ultimately ended up chasing that move. Now, this begs the obvious question, has the market moved too far too fast? And are we now due for some type of in-range consolidation that allows for volumes to build up and positions to be squared in front of year end? Our take is yes, but it will occur with 10-year yields effectively capped at 4%. That's not to suggest that 10-year yields can't momentarily trade with a four-handle again, but as we contemplate 2024, the clear theme is going to be three-handles in the treasury market as opposed to fours or fives. You talk about FOMO. What is FOMO? You already missed it. 
In the week ahead, the Treasury market will continue to recalibrate to the updated understanding of the Fed's reaction function to the incoming economic data, most notably the still elevated but moderating inflation complex in the U.S. The no-landing narrative is alive and well, and if the Fed does choose to follow the lead of the futures market and deliver a rate cut during the first quarter of next year, that would be very constructive in the FOMC's endeavor to avoid a hard landing. That being said, we anticipate that as we hear from an increasing number of Fed speakers over the course of the next several weeks, that the market will be afforded a better understanding of just how dovish the Fed's pivot was. The week ahead also has the 20-year auction at $13 billion on Wednesday and the five-year tips auction, $20 billion on Thursday afternoon. Interpreting the takedown of tips auctions has always been a bit of a challenge because the notion that investors would be willing to pay up for inflation protection is intuitively somewhat bond bearish because it implies expectations for higher inflation over the course of the next five years. The underwriting of the 20-year, however, tends to be a bit more straightforward in that context at least. While the sector has underperformed its neighbors, the auctions are ultimately underwritten and the supply absorbed. The data point of most relevance in the week ahead comes in the form of the core PCE number for November. Given November's core CPI print, which on an unrounded basis was up 0.285, the expectations are for a 0.2 increase in November's core PCE numbers. Such a pace would represent reasonable progress towards the Fed's ultimate goal of 2%, although a 0.1 would accelerate the process and would surely be a welcome development for monetary policymakers and, frankly, for the market as a whole, given the eagerness with which we've seen rate cuts priced into 2024. Let us not forget that Friday afternoon is a recommended early close of 2 p.m. Thanks, IFMA. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And in the wake of comments from the New York Fed President John Williams, affectionately known as the Grinch of Liberty Street, the spike in front-end yields has dampened the holiday cheer. Well, there's always next year. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.